John chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 14, and verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him Hear the word of the Lord. There's a pop culture phrase that's seeped into our vocabulary these days. It's read the room. It's a phrase depicting the social necessity to feel the temperature and the emotional temperament of the situation that you are in and respond accordingly. Why it's become so pervasive, it has even made its way into a, a progressive insurance commercial with Flo. You know, that quote is, is in one of her commercials. Why don't you read the room? Now, this miracle story, the very first miracle of Jesus in this series on the miracle of Jesus, this first miracle of Jesus has several different reads of the room. Uh, that is, uh, there are several different 
emotional and circumstantial phases to this wedding party. This miracle story is full of different rooms to be read. Please don't miss the fact that when Jesus Christ acts, the room lights up with joy. By the way, isn't it true that we create an atmosphere by what animates our lives? By that, what is important to us shows up in the passion with which we give ourselves to what we give ourselves to in life. Our mood and our spirit says something about our outlook and the shape of our disposition and just what is important to us in our existence. Our mood and our spirit say something about our outlook and who we are. So one question that this story asks us is, why isn't our spirit full of what was in the room when they took the wine to the maitre d'. Had a bellman's job in Dallas. I may have told you this before. When I was in seminary, I worked at the Sheraton Inn Mockingbird. If you drive down Mockingbird Lane in Dallas now, it doesn't exist. They, you know, it's gone. They tore it down. But anyway, right next to Love Field, so I'd go on errands over to Love Field. And, and then uh, they had uh, JetBlue, which was a, uh, a private place where... Uh, Folks would fly in, and once in a while, I'd have to pick somebody up. I picked up Dale Harris, the uh, coach of the L.A. Lakers one night. Before Cable, he flew to Dallas to watch a game, the Houston Rockets, on TV because he was going to play them next. It was fascinating. But anyway, um, just a different era. Uh, I had to pick up somebody, Jet Blue, and I walked in, and the room was a buzz. I couldn't tell what in the world was happening. I knew as I pulled up, a pretty swanky limousine pulled away. Well, come to find out... Uh, Burt Reynolds and Pam Anderson have just flown in and lit the place up, you know, and they leave getting the limousine drive off, and I walk in, and the place is, I'm trying to figure out, what's, what's going on in here? Uh, because the place was, like, rocking with excitement, uh, and they thought that was glorious. But this wedding reception rocks with joy and a glory that shaped the disciples' lives. Look at verse 11. Jesus did it, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did it, Canaan, in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is their threshold moment of saying, we're in with Jesus. They saw the glory of God in the outbreak of joy, and they said, we're in. We're in, and they were changed from this point forward. Why isn't our spirit, that's one question that is asked of us this morning, why isn't our spirit full of what was in that room since we who claim to know the living God know Jesus Christ as our Savior? Doesn't it stand to reason that he who brought joy to that room brings joy to the rooms of our life, and we image that joy through the way in which we live or are we so full of pursuits of lesser joys that we've squeezed out the room for the joy of the lord remember nehemiah the joy of the lord is our strength are we full of kingdom joy this morning or do we want the Bengals to win and make us real joyous this afternoon i know that's not fair 
What would make you happy today? What animates our lives? What fills our joys? What do we get stoked over? Oh, this first miracle is for us here at Calvary this morning. Let's bring our hearts out to John 2, and let's let the joys of the kingdom of God reshape our disposition today. Now, I want to go two different directions. Number one, in looking at this window, remember that's the title of the series, Windows 22. That is, Jesus in his miracles erects windows through which you and I can look out and see the glory of what's going to be in the establishment of his kingdom. And of course, we live in this already not yet form of the kingdom of God, already able to taste of the powers of the kingdom of God and yet not being fully recognized by the world as will be when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. We're living in that already and yet not yet. Uh, but Christ puts this window up and it's a window. We look out through it. They're having a party. This is great joy. And if we are children of the kingdom, then that same joy should be our franchise as well. First, I want to make four observations. Then I want to ask you three questions that stem from this story that will get into the stuff of our heart. Observation number one, Jesus first showed his glory at a wedding party with a bride and a bridegroom. Don't miss the venue for this first miracle. It's at a wedding. At a biblical wedding in which a bridegroom is being wed with a bride. Now, in the first century, Jewish folk were really good at weddings. They lasted for a week. That's quite a party. And... Uh, it didn't start, there was a betrothal period, a formal contract. They weren't around each other for one year to prove their purity to each other. And then the day of the bridegroom's choosing, he would go to the bride's house, and it was on. The party was ready. And they would celebrate for seven days this union. God, in the beginning at creation, for our good and his glory, established this union of a man and a woman together for life as the bedrock of civilization, as the social construct that was going to hold the fiber of society together. So what does Jesus do? His very first expression of glory was at a wedding. Don't miss that. This is Jesus, certainly evidence, bona fide evidence of Jesus blessing this union. Him joining God and saying, yes, this is the way that God created things to be. I'm going there, and he blesses it. And wow, did he ever bless this union. By the way, Warren Wiersbe, who, uh, it, it, it doesn't hurt a message ever to quote Warren Wiersbe. I think there's two of them here this morning. Wise is the couple who invite Jesus to their wedding. Wise is the couple that has Jesus living at the center of their marriage was Jesus at your wedding if you're married 
Is he in your marriage? You ever seen those Where's Waldo pictures? A guy wears that striped shirt, the goofy hat, and, and the picture's full of all kinds of activity going on. You have to fish around. Where's Waldo? You have to fish around and find him. You ever gone to a wedding and ask yourself, where's Waldo? Where's Jesus in this wedding? Have you ever wondered about a marriage and said, where's Waldo in this marriage? By the way, where's Jesus Christ in your marriage? I've had the thrill through the years of preparing uh, people for marriage and getting next to them and trying to be of encouragement, trying to instruct them, trying to counsel them, trying to help them. I've watched, it's amazing, the planning, the hours, the forethought, the premeditation that goes into the wedding. I've watched people spend hours, months on planning for the wedding. And what seemed to me like minutes planning for the marriage. The wedding is one glorious day. That's the inception. It begins it. Ah, but the glory is to live in the sanctifying grace of what holy matrimony brings to our own walk with Christ. Uh, there's an author whose name escapes me right now as I spontaneously think of it. Wrote a book called uh, uh, Sacred Marriage. Here's, here's his thesis. God never designed marriage to make us happy, but to make us holy. And in the process of making us holy, we come to the happiness of maturity in Christ because every day marriage will call us to crucify ourselves for the sake of our partner. And in that bitter crucifixion emerges the glory of a selfless life, which is where God was seeking to bring us all along in following Jesus. It's a fascinating thesis. I, I really appreciate it. Now, Jesus goes to the wedding, a wedding, a Christian wedding, groom, bride, coming together. He does this well before the author of the book of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and the marriage bed be undefiled. He does this well before the apostle Paul would say, we're going to stumble upon a time in the last days, in the latter days, when some will depart from the faith. Paul, tell us what will be the manifestation of departing from the faith. Well, some will forbid marriage. By the way, marriage rates are going down, and some sociologists in our day are saying, yeah, that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing. Christ knew about that. He got out in front of it. Miracle number one stamps heaven's good housekeeping seal of approval upon this union of marriage. If you're a young person looking down the road and thinking, ought I get married? And, you know, today uh, people are waiting longer and longer and longer to get married. My encouragement to you is be holy. Pursue a mate and marry and give yourself to the sanctifying grace of marriage. It's simultaneously challenging and wonderful and great at the same time. Because what makes a good marriage is selflessness, and that hurts. I, th I actually thought I was holy until I got married. 
you know, I, I was all, you know, I'm going to seminary. I'm going to be a holy man. I'm going to be a preacher. I went through the first year of seminary. Yeah, man, I'm really at the high water mark sanctification-wise. And then I got married. And what marriage did was introduce to me what a raw, selfish heart I had. I thought I loved Andy. Well, marriage introduced me to how much I loved Eric. And how those loves would compete with each other. And what I learned along the way was uh, whichever love won was a barometer for whether or not it was going well or not going well in marriage. Thank God for a long-suffering wife. I love you, Andy. (laughs) Second observation, not everyone in the story was aware of this miracle. Look at verse 9. The maitre d' is stunned. He has no idea what has happened. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. D.A. Carson calls this the semi-public miracle. How not like a TV preacher is Jesus in chapter 2 of John. He's not out there, hey, everybody, I want you to see what I'm doing. He did something glorious. And only the waiters and the disciple, his mother, knew what was going on. Fascinating. It flew under the radar of most folks there. Have you ever been to something and have something go on and you get back from it? They said, hey, were you there? Yeah, I was there. Wow. Can you believe this broke out while you were there? What? I didn't even know it happened. 1991, I sat with a friend. It was a great day. I still remember the day. I remember the stuff we talked about. Uh, I went to the Professional Golfers Association tournament at Crooked Stick in Indianapolis. And we followed a group, and there was some blonde-haired guy behind us that kept hitting into the group we were following. John Daly, he actually won it that year. Nobody knew who he was. He came out of nowhere. He was the last alternate. Well, uh, we followed this group that I wanted to watch play. I followed a Christian guy named Larry Nelson who was on the tour for a while. And we sat down at the 18th hole, and I watched all the groups come through. Got toward the afternoon. Clouds started coming in. A little threatening of rain. We thought, hey, let's just go to the car. We're walking the car. Starts raining a little bit, some lightning. We get in the car and come home. We come home, and and uh, guy's family I was with said, hey, are you guys all right? Yeah, we had a wonderful day. Well, you know, lightning struck a guy walking to his car, and he died on the way to his car. So here you have this event that happens. We were clueless. We had no idea. Now, that's something awful. This is something wonderful. Uh, water turned to wine, which rescued this reception, which was going south very bad. And nobody knew what happened, except that few. Isn't it true that revelation, God disclosing himself to us, this is a reminder, that revelation is unavailable to the distracted crowd. How distracted are we this morning? How much do we pick up on what Jesus is doing in the powers of the kingdom that are operating right around our heart. Third observation, some wrongly see Mary's mediating role beginning with this exchange with Jesus. Let's come back to verses 3, 4, and 5. John 2. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, it could have been that Jesus 
Jesus' family knew the family of the bride and groom. Now, you remember, Joseph and Mary were dirt poor, so these people didn't have a lot. Their friends, ostensibly, may not have had a lot. They run out of supplies. And uh, Mary could have even been the caterer for the event, in charge of everything. That's why she was aware of this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Mary appeals to Jesus to act. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now it's interesting. Uh, Mary had to move from mother of Jesus to follower of her Lord. Uh, Some look at this as a rude exchange between Jesus. It wasn't that at all. Jesus was helping her understand uh, what she was not fully apprised of yet. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The notion of hour is introduced here. It will mature and get more robust as Christ heads for the cross. He knew that the clock is starting with this event, and he's headed inexorably to his hour. Remember, later he will say, my hour has come, and he goes to the cross and dies on the cross for our sins. God be praised. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I would not stop for this observation, I don't believe, if we were not in northern Kentucky. Now, since it's just us kids, isn't it true that Roman Catholicism has a very influential role in the history and the warp and woof of Cincinnati and surrounding areas? Have you ever wondered, what's all the deal with Mary? Eric, where do they get this praying to Mary stuff? They would argue, oh, we get it from John 2. Look at that. That's a perfect example where Mary assumes her role as a mediatrix, a female mediator, right here. What do you mean Mary does it? Well, look what she does. Mary asked Jesus to do something on behalf of others. So it must mean if you want Jesus to do something on behalf of others, including yourself, you ask Mary to tell Jesus that you need something. And so Mary begins her mediating role, we are told, here. And so uh, get into a situation, run off to a few Hail Marys, and uh, you know, you'll, get, you'll get through it. Now, I'm not a Catholic basher, but we need to stand up for orthodoxy, and let's use logic. The error, it, no, no, the error in this thinking is on a couple of grounds. Number one, 1 Timothy 5.2, there is one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. The one way to God is through no one else other than Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you take a Roman Catholic reading of this passage and say, Eric, look, that's very clear. Mary asked Jesus for something. He does it so that that must mean if you go through Mary, Jesus will do something for you. Now, wait a minute. If you apply that logic to every other interaction with Jesus had in the Gospels with people who appeal to him and say, will you come and do this? Would not you have to say, well, that female is also a mediatrix because she asked Jesus for something and he did it And therefore, if we could get a hold of her, she would help us to get to Jesus. Now, wait a minute. That that man did that. Isn't he a mediator? No, there is one mediator 
Now you heard, I hope you heard my message on Mary over Advent. Protestants are scared of Mary and they tend to downplay her. An extraordinary lady. She faces a scandal. What's she say? Be it done unto me according to your word. Oh, Mary's a model respondent. She's great. She's just not a mediatrix. We don't go through Mary. We don't need to. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But if you've ever wondered, where, where does that come from? It comes from here. And they, they look at Mary in this light and say, look, no, there, there she's the mediatrix. Hail Marys aren't going to help us. But we can appeal to Jesus Christ our Lord. Who in his priestly mediating role, isn't it amazing to think this thought? He ever lives to make intercession for us. Eric, what does that mean? That means last night as we slept, Jesus was praying for us. Haven't you heard people say to you, hey, I'm praying for you. And you thought, boy, that's a shot in the arm. Well, here's what God tells us. Jesus was praying for you last night and pleading your case before me, the Father in heaven. Wow, what a Savior. Observation number three. Some wrongly see Mary's mediating role beginning with this exchange. Observation number four. The miracle is a sign pointing beyond itself. Look at verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, the big deal about a sign is actually not the sign. The sign points to something. Let's say you drive all that way out to Wyoming and you roll up on uh, the Grand Teton National Park. Your family gets out of the car and does what everybody else does and as long as the line's not too long. You run up to the sign, you know, and you're holding on. Welcome to the Grand Teton National Park. You get a picture taken. You get back in your car and you drive back home. You say, Eric, I want to show you a picture, man. What's your picture? Oh, look at this, man. This is great. What's great? Look where we were. Oh, you were at the Teton. Oh, that's fantastic. That vista off the lodge looking at those three peaks, that's glorious. I'm glad you saw it. You said, what? That vista, that's just amazing. What? No. We just took a picture of the sign, got back in the car and drove home. Dude, you missed it. Because the sign is not the big deal. The sign is pointing you to the glory of what is there if you'll but experience it. And so this is a sign, not drawing attention to itself, but pointing to the glory of this Savior. There's a lot going on in this passage. My hour has not yet come. Mary's migration from I'm your mom to you're my Savior, you're my Lord. The Jewish rituals of cleansing, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Wine as a symbol of joy. The prophets have said, when God sets up his kingdom on earth, we're going to drink wine and be happy. And the gesture of drinking wine was uh, an expression of joy. And it was a look forward to the joy that was going to come. There, there's a lot going on here. This is John 1.14 lived out. We're beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Now, what it does then Having seen the glory of God, notice what these signs do. John 20, 30, 31. Tamara already has read it well to us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these 
are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. These signs point to the glory of our Savior and bring us unto Christ. That's exactly what happened in the lives of these disciples, and that's what's going on in John 2.11. Now, all right, those are four observations. Okay, what difference does this make? Why does this matter? How does this miracle shape our understanding of the kingdom of God? When we look out this window, water to wine, what do we see? Can you see the nature of the kingdom looking out this window? Clearly, it's a miracle of creation. Uh, he not only blesses the wedding and the institution of marriage, Jesus demonstrates that he is the creator in human flesh with us. Let's get to three questions which get next to our hearts here. Question number one, do we get into the kingdom by ritual cleansing or by the free gift of a clean standing before a holy God? Look at verse 6. Judaism had prescribed all these things that had to be done in order to be pure. One of them was a series of washings. And so people would have these pots determined holy and not profane for the use of purification. These pots are right in the room that Jesus enters. Now there were six stone water jars there why are they there? For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Too much cannot be said and cannot be made of the symbolic use of these ritual jars. What Jesus does is he co-ops these jars for a new purpose. He's repurposing these jars and communicating something extraordinary in the middle of repurposing these jars. You can hear the Jewish legalist gasp, oh, I can't believe it. He's using, how dare he use those holy jars for purification? Uh, Jesus trumps ritual and eclipses ritual and creates in these very jars formerly purposed for self-involvement in purification to the free joy of a free gift of rightly relating to God. And he does this through, here's the miracle in the whole thing, transformation. Jesus' power transformed, verse 9, the water to wine. Now I love the fact and, and the narrator John here describes they filled them up clear to the brim the, these are empty jars used exclusively for purification everybody oh don't use those jars Jesus said use those jars we're going to repurpose them that's not how you are made pure and they filled them and the text records up, completely up to the brim so nobody could say well they were 80% full and I saw that flask that somebody had it was a hard shot turned it into you know, wine, mix it up a little bit. No, it's water up to the brim. Draw it out and take it to the maitre d'. And the maitre d' says, this is the best stuff I've ever had. All of those gallons of supply 
late in the game when the reception is going south bad. Christ took the old and he fulfilled it. He eclipsed it. He brought the promise of life and cleansing in himself through a gift in this act. Or what Paul would say, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Or if you want to paraphrase it, he saved us not because of the purifying rituals that we go through with Jewish or any other holy water, but according to his own mercy by the washing. What kind of washings involved of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? So that when we receive Jesus Christ into our lives, he washes us clean. Through his blood, we are made whole. And we are purified through being given the gift of Christ's perfections. And in receiving that gift, having imputing that gift, imputed that gift to our charge when we believe. So that when God looks at us, he sees the character of Christ. So that we simultaneously are holy while yet sinful, as Luther wrote. What glory there is in the gospel. God wants to give us a gift that makes us acceptable to God in righteousness. Not through self-righteous acts that we believe will bring us incrementally unto purity. Oh, the glory of grace. It's not about effort. It's about opening a gift. And the free gift of righteousness so let me ask you is it self-righteousness wash yourself pure get over there next to those purification things is it self-righteousness or is it the gift of righteousness offered in jesus christ miracle number one brings that into focus external washings could never do anything for the soul oh precious is the flow that makes us, isn't it a good week to think of these lyrics, white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you understand what it is to be made clean through believing in Jesus and receiving the gift of being clean before a holy God that's not about our self-righteousness, but about Christ's selflessness dying on the cross and his righteousness given to us as a gift. Do we get into the kingdom by ritual cleansing or by the free gift of a clean standing before a holy God? Second question, are we giving ourselves to kingdom living? This is brief. It's to the point. I love what Mary says in verse 5. She turns around to the waiters. By the way, that term waiters is the noun from which we get the term. It's the same term. Deacon. Those are the deacons. Notice. They don't have authority, but they are given to serve the body that's there. And she turns to the deacons, and she has one word for them. Let me give you some instruction. And is it not the best instruction the church has ever heard? Whatever he says, do it. You say, Eric, what, how, do, how should I live this year? Whatever Jesus says, do it. Eric, what, what ought we do as a church? Whatever Jesus says, do it. I love what she says to them. It's irreducibly clear. This is back to Samuel's prayer that Eli gave him to pray. Just go back and lay down in bed and just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Is that us? Is that who we are? 
Is that you? Is that me? Does Matthew 6.33 define us? Seek first my righteousness. Seek the kingdom of God first and most. And then all these other things will be added unto you. What defines our lives? What are we living for? Let me rephrase it. Whom are we living for? Are we giving ourselves the kingdom living? Do whatever he tells you. Let's make it simple. I like simple and clear. Third question. Have we left the joy out of... Have we left the joy... I'm sorry. Have we left out the joy in living a kingdom life? Look at verse 10. The maitre d' said, everyone serves a good wine first when people drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. By the way, is gospel Christianity a killjoy? I mean, if you really want to have joy in life, can you follow Jesus? Does joy and following Jesus, does that even go together? By the way, do you understand that back to the students that Jason and Amy are pouring their lives into, that's one of the questions they're asking. Is that what I want? Do I want following Jesus? And if I follow Jesus, am I going to have any joy in life? And some have the impression, if I follow him, my life's going to be devoid of joy. And just the opposite is true. But it seems counterintuitive. You want to save your life, lose your life. If you want to live, die. Then you'll really live. Die to yourself. Live for others. Is gospel Christianity a killjoy? Have we modeled a faith in which you're not allowed to have any fun or experience any joy? If we have, we totally missed it. Because I want you to read the room when this wine starts to flow. Now stay with me all the way through as we think about this. The family's in a terrible spot. Hospitality to guests, was a premium was placed on that. Wedding parties lasted a week. In the rabbinic writings, the rabbis wrote, I think it's in the Mishnah, in a series of writings about who the thieves are. <laughs> There's one entry that's rather surprising. Here it is. He who presses his fellow to come as, as his guest, but does not attend to receive him properly. That means invited to a place that would run out of wine before the reception's over. Now, this social etiquette and convention seems foreign to us. In fact, in Jewish law, you could actually sue the bridegroom for not providing well for you at the reception. Have you ever been to a reception where you needed a plaintiff lawyer? <laughs> Don't answer that, especially if it was one of your friends. You know. and, and, and by the way, costs are so obscene today, just amazing. Um, you're just as married when you're married. Uh, six years ago, our daughter got married. It was one of the greatest days in our family's lives. Also was a rather expensive day. I don't lament anything. It was so wonderful. Our friends have been so kind to us, and we love them, and we had a plated dinner. Our nephew's getting married in East Cleveland, a nice area, and they're getting prices on plated dinners for reception. And we thought $25 to $30 was absurd. 
swallowed hard and kept going. Now it's like $70 to $100 a plate for guests. Uh, you can be a good steward and have joy and um, not have it's so extravagant that um, there's 14 liens on your house before it's over. But the social etiquette in the first century gives energy to this story. We, we don't relate to that. This is a great tragedy. This poor family's in trouble. This poor family's going to face scorn. They may face lawsuits. People will remember. They're in trouble. And Jesus steps into the breach. And to a few revealed his glory and made abundant supply the need and not only sustained the joy of that day, but brought a joy that wasn't there before he imposed his presence in the circumstance. Jesus in the kingdom brings joy. Is that what we carry in our spirit? Now the rabbis also had said this, the miracle, verse 9, water to wine. While Jewish tradition as does Christian tradition from the word of God, frowns on drunkenness and commands against it. The rabbi said, there is not rejoicing save with wine. In Psalm 104, 15, speaking of God, that he may bring food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Verse 10 talks about the drink freely term is a term for coming under the influence of alcohol. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Don't read this as an unmitigated invitation to go drink wine. I'm a teetotaler. Not because the Bible tells me so, but because it is wise and prudent, and I want to be self-disciplined, and I don't want to introduce things into my life. I don't trust my flesh and the weakness of my flesh. And I'm not holier than thou. I just, uh, I, I, I know that I'm not holy and I, I, I can scarcely give myself to anything that's going to take control of me. And that's why I don't drink. And I encourage you, I would beg you not to drink. I wish I had an infinite amount of time. I know you think that's what I think I have every Sunday morning. But to tell you about what alcohol has done to marriages and friendships and relationships, and it, they're not good stories. But a promoter of joy at this reception and the spirit of the kingdom is the wine that was the best that was there that Jesus provided for everyone who was there. The presence of Jesus changed everything. It always does. Psalm 1611, you made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The chief promoter of joy in this occasion was Jesus. That's our Lord. That's what he's calling us to. Is that what we are experiencing? Andy and I, about 200 yards away, we were at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And we heard this revelry, and it sounded so cool, and we turned around, and it, it was really a wonderful experience. We heard them 200 yards away. Here they were coming. They had accordions. They had flutes. And they were clapping, and they were singing, and we were trying to figure out what in the world's going on. What is that parade? Here was a little boy, 
It was a bar mitzvah. A little boy from New York City was there with his whole clan, and they were reveling. And I don't tell you, Jewish people can really revel. And they were reveling, and it was Marymount, and they were headed, and it was joyous, singing and clapping, and they were celebrating this boy. I thought, why don't we have a good bar mitzvah for our boys in gospel Christianity and bar, bar mitzvah, I forget how you enunciate, for, for girls when they come of age. And wow, it was so cool. They went right up to the wailing wall. But it was, it was high joy in Marymount. If you're reading that situation, that's what's going on as the maitre d' says, hey, you all, I got to get your attention. We're going to pour some stuff here you're not going to believe. And this is going to send us to the celebration of this union together in a way that we wouldn't have had before it came. It's about the abundant supply we get in Jesus. John 1, 16, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Or what Jonathan Edwards' wife, and I've told you this before, called infinite upon infinite upon infinite upon infinite. That's what we get in Jesus. Infinite joys. Warren Wiersbe said, the world's joy always runs out and cannot be regained, but the joy he gives is ever new and ever satisfying. Where's our joy? Romans 14, 17, we're going to come as our, back to as our postlude. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Help me. Is joy rare or abundant in Jesus' church? Is joy here? like we see looking out this window in the kingdom of God. Is it our defining commodity? If it is, not. What's going on in our hearts and what is God calling us to today? God has called us in Christ to an outrageous provision of joy at his right hand in offering us himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Wow, what a reception. So much so that it marked the lives of the disciples and they began to believe. I pray for those who are here this morning who never yet believed, but who hear of this joy that Christ brings, an eternal quality of joy, not as the world gives joys, they're so passing, but an enduring joy found in knowing Christ. Lord, open the hearts of those who are reaching for you right now. Lord, for those who need to invite Christ back into their marriage today in a fresh way, hear their prayer. For those in this good way following you who are beat down by life's brokenness, Lord, give them a sip of this wine to hearten their spirit and remind them that when the kingdom comes, joy is going to be uncorked as never before. Oh, Father, deliver us from discouraging depression and bring us unto the high joy that it is to know you as Savior. Hear us as we pray in this moment unto you and respond to the word of God and this window looking out to see the joy of the kingdom.
Oh, Father, use your word to make us alive into what you've wanted to bring us to all along, and that is the joy of knowing Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have one final song.